come this Lord's Day to continue our study in the God of all comforts, focusing upon the Comforter, whom the Father sends in Christ's name, that is the Holy Ghost, indwelling the hearts of believers. Having suffered Himself without a man to comfort Him, our Lord Jesus is bound and determined that we should never be without a Comforter. Christ promised us that He will pray that the Father give us another Comforter, who is the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of Truth. Christ promises He will not leave us comfortless, and we will know the Comforter because He will dwell in us. So the comfort we have in the Holy Ghost is first that He dwells in us, giving us life and sustaining that life on account of the sacrifice of Christ for our sins. But Christ provides to us additional reasons why we are comforted by the Holy Ghost. He compares His personal face-to-face teachings with the work of the Comforter, because the Comforter will teach us all things and bring to remembrance the things that Christ said and did. Christ had just told His disciples that He must ascend back to His Father in heaven and will not be present physically to continue to teach His people, but the Comforter will as it were, take His place and continue to teach and to bring to mind the things that Jesus had told them during His ministry. This is particularly important to the writing of the Scriptures. It is the Comforter that called to the apostles' minds what Jesus had said and done so that they could record it accurately in God's Word. Our Bible is the record of what God wants us to know about Christ, His Gospel and His teachings. It was the Comforter that made sure that the men God called to record His words did so accurately. Thus the Comforter comforts us in knowing that God's Word is pure and true because He made it so. But Christ also indicated that the Comforter would teach things to the apostles that God wanted them to know. There is much teaching in Scripture that the Comforter conveyed to the writers directly for the first time. Christ's promise regarding the Comforter bringing to mind the truth about Jesus applies to us today and to all the Lord's people. In our case, the Comforter does not teach us new things that aren't in God's Word. Rather, the Spirit dwelling in us teaches us from God's Word things we didn't realize before were there. He brings to our minds the truths He knows we need to recall when we need to know them. Being knit together with us, God's Spirit and our Spirit, in sweet communion and companionship, the Comforter knows us better than we know ourselves, and He communicates with our Spirit the things of God and from His Word. Paul lays out the radical difference between the lost man of the flesh, that is, the natural man, versus the Spirit-filled man. The Spirit reveals to us the truth of the Gospel and the things of God, which cannot be believed or trusted in, without the work of the Spirit in us. Paul preached to the people not with man's clever words, but with spiritual words, conveying spiritual truths. Paul then startles us by pointing out that the spiritual truths of God's grace and salvation cannot enter into the heart of the natural man. Only by the Spirit are these truths revealed to us and convict us. Without the power of the Spirit, First, changing our hearts and minds, we cannot believe and trust and rejoice in the gospel promises. It takes the power of the Holy Ghost first working in us for us to savingly believe God's Word. We who believe have first received the Holy Ghost. 
so that we may know the things that are freely given to us by God. The natural man in his fallen estate cannot accept God's truth of the gospel, considers it all foolishness because it can only be discerned by the power of the Holy Ghost working in us. If we know the gospel and believe it and trust in Jesus for salvation, that is only because the Holy Ghost is in us teaching us and showing us the things of God. So if you understand the things of God and embrace them and rejoice in them without rejection or scoffing, then you have evidence of the Comforter comforting you. To see the mighty miraculous work of the Comforter in you, look around at how many people reject the Gospel and continue in their sin and rebellion and refuse to believe it. For those who believe God, it all seems so obvious now to us, but that is because the Holy Ghost has been at work teaching us and calling to mind the things of Christ. How many people even attend the Lord's Supper not comprehending what it really means, what it actually points to? But if you and I grasp it and rejoice in it, then the Comforter has used it also to remind us of the truth about Jesus. Now, today we come to speak on the subject reproofs and comforts by the Comforter. Jesus foretells a stark truth of the world's hatred of Himself and His people. You remember, He described how we are to love one another, even as Christ has loved us, and even as Christ has loved the Father. But then Christ displays or reveals this truth of the world's hatred and persecuting of the Lord's people. In John 15 at verse 18 through 21, we read this, If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. Because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. Now notice Christ tells us that we are out of the world. We are not of the world. We were in the world, but we're chosen out of the world into union with Christ. Christ tells us that He has chosen us out of the world. And therefore, we're alienated from the world that we once swam in, as it were. Therefore, the world hates us. It hates us because we're in Christ and we're no longer in the world because they persecuted Christ and therefore they must persecute those who trust in Christ. And it's done, notice, for Christ's name's sake. It's done because we worship and adore and love the Lord Jesus and trust in Him. That's why they will persecute us for Christ's name's sake. Because they don't know the God that sent the Lord Jesus. They don't know the Father. They hate the Father because they hate the Son. And this is something that many of us are afraid to articulate, isn't it? Well, we can't say that people who hate Christ, hate God, hate the Father. Why, that would mean we'd have to sweep up a whole bunch of people that we want to be friendly toward, doesn't it? That we want to argue that they worship the same God as we do. They just reject Christ as Messiah. No, that's not the possibility. You either accept the Father and the Son or you reject both of them. There's no good saying that we all worship the same God. 
No, we don't. People who love Christ worship God. And all the rest who hate Christ worship false gods. They do not worship the God of the Scriptures because they do not love the Lord Jesus. Now notice Christ is speaking the truth to them and it brought out this hatred. That is, Christ spoke the truth and preached the truth to the world and it brought out their hatred in Him. It provoked it, if you will. Verse 22, If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin, but now they have no cloak for their sin. So the Lord Jesus' ministry included provoking wicked men into having to confront their sin, which they thought they were rid of. Particularly the Pharisees who thought they were righteous because of their law-keeping. And the Lord Jesus cut that out from under them with a few swift strokes of the sword of the Word, didn't He? And He said that if you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder. If you look upon a woman with lust, you're guilty of adultery. If you go about the streets proclaiming your obedience to God and you make all your charitable contributions in public for the praise of men, why then these are sinful acts, not acts of holiness and justice and righteousness. And so he ripped, as it were, the veil off of the covering for their sin. He took away their garments of beautiful so-called righteousness and exposed them as unrighteous and alienated from God and at enmity with God and hopeless and in need of a Savior. And so they hated Him for it. He exposed their guiltiness and their shame and their dishonor. And it is in this context that they hated Him. And Jesus says, well, fine, then that means you hate my Father also. You hate God. That's why you don't like it when your sin is exposed by my teaching and by my ministry. If I had not done among them the works that none other man did, they had not had sin, but now they have both seen and hated both me and my Father. You see, Jesus revealed the true heart of God, the true holiness of God, the true righteous requirements of God. And that's the God they hated. They didn't hate the God of their own creation of their own heart. They had molded them a false god, an idol. They could feel comfortable worshiping. But now Jesus has revealed the one true God and they hate Him for it. And they hate the God that He's revealed. We should notice that in Christ's Gospel preaching, their hatred of God and His Christ are unmasked. They no longer have a cloak for their evil. And it fulfills the prophecy, does it not? It's found in the Old Testament. Psalm 69, verse 4. They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies, wrongfully are mighty. And thus it could be said of those people who objected and who despised and who fought the Lord Jesus. They were the religious rulers. They were the nominal civil authorities, a subject, of course, to the Roman tyrants. And so therefore, Christ said in verse 25 of John 15, But this cometh to pass, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. So 
Christ is telling us that this hatred of Christ and of His Father and of all things according to the one true God revealed in Scripture in the Old Testament, that this was the result so that the word of the prophets of old times could be fulfilled that they hated Christ without a cause. They had no good cause to hate Christ, only selfish, idolatrous, wicked, self-centered causes of their own manufacture. So it's never a good reason to hate someone because they expose your wickedness. And yet isn't that really the nub of most of the wickedness in our society today? It's not so much that people are wicked, but that they have a wicked response when their wickedness comes to light, when it's exposed. They go after the people who've done them and everybody else a service of exposing evil against the commandments of God. Now they have to compound those evils with the evil of trying to destroy the people who have exposed their wickedness and their unrighteousness. And we see this in the secular world with the persecution and jailing and torture and even murder of the whistleblowers. We see it in all countries, practically. And we see it in spiritual matters when the public at large will not entertain sound preaching because it makes them uncomfortable, because it exposes the fact that their self-righteousness is insufficient for the task, that they have a sin debt before a holy and righteous God. And that's why they hate us without a cause, even as they hated Christ without a cause. Ah, but look then at how Christ answers in this life all of that hatred and wickedness and oppression and persecution which wicked people heaped upon Him and heaped upon His people. Verse 26, But when the Comforter is come, that's the answer that Christ is giving to His disciples and to us all about the temporal solution, answer to all the evil, all the opposition to the gospel, all the persecution of the Lord's people, even as they opposed Christ's gospel, they opposed Him, they persecuted Him wrongfully. The answer to that which Christ offers is when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, He shall testify of Me. You see, you have the falsehood and the lies and the wickedness and the persecution and even the jailing and the torture and the murder of the Lord's people as was done to the Lord Himself. You have that and then you have the truth. You see, and the truth is brought and testified to by the Comforter. He is the one who proceedeth from the Father. He's the Spirit of truth. He will testify of Me. So on the one hand, you have the people who hate Christ and who oppose the Gospel and who argue against it and testify against it and persecute it. And on the other hand, you have the Comforter, who's the Spirit of truth, that is, Truth as compared to their falsehood and lies. The Comforter is the one who comes to testify of the truth. Notice that this testimony is twofold. It's to the lost world, because the Holy Ghost convicts of sin. 
And the Holy Ghost declares to lost people the gospel in those who have been chosen by God unto salvation. This declaration by the Comforter is efficacious. It brings about regeneration, a new heart, where before there was an old stony heart. So there is a testifying of the Comforter all over the world. Even unto those who hate God and His Son, Jesus Christ, because they cannot escape the rebuke of the Holy Ghost in their hearts. They can suppress it, they can ignore it, but they can't escape it. And in their hearts, the Spirit condemns them of their wickedness against the Lord Jesus and against His people. They know they have done wrong. They know they have committed crimes against the Lord Jesus. But far greater you see, the testimony of the Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, testifies to Christ's people the glorious things about our Savior. So we have the world who hates Christ and hates His people, who scoffs at the Gospel, scoffs at God's Word, who does everything they can to overturn those things and to persecute and imprison and even put to death those who proclaim those things. And then on the other hand, you have the work of the Comforter in the hearts of the Lord's people, telling them the truth, testifying to the truth, reminding them of the things of Christ. And the Lord Jesus seems to be saying in this text that for now, this is a sufficient answer to the problem of the wicked opposing God, opposing His Christ, opposing His people, opposing His Gospel, that the Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, testifies to Christ's people the glorious things about our Savior, the glorious things about His Gospel. You see how Christ contrasts the hatred and slander and persecution of His people by the wicked with the comfort given us by the Comforter. He puts great stock in the power and working of the Comforter who will work this marvelous work of peace and of hope and of help in the hearts of His people. Note well that He is the Spirit of truth versus the lies spread by wicked men about Jesus. The Comforter speaks to us the truth about our God, about our Lord Jesus. Christ puts great weight upon this work of the Holy Ghost for us and for the cause of Christ in us. But also, notice, it says the apostles also would testify the truth about Christ, what they had personally witnessed. The truth and not lies. Look, it says here, verse 27, And ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. They know the truth. They saw it. They know that the lies are lies indeed, and the slanders are slanders. And the wicked objection to Christ is of no value at all, but ought to be contended with, and therefore they testify of the things of the truth about Christ because they were witnesses and they had seen and heard what Christ said. So the apostles would also testify the truth about Christ, what they had personally witnessed, the truth and not lies, and we have that testimony preserved in the Holy Scripture. As we spoke on last week, the Scriptures were superintended by the Comforter so that we might have a true word 
the truth about Jesus and the truth about the gospel and the truth about his teaching and his ministry, the truth about God and his holiness and righteousness and justice and goodness and truth. We have the testimony of the apostles recorded in the scripture according to the work of the Comforter to bring to their mind the things that Christ said and that Christ did. And note well that Christ deems this a sufficient response to the evil conduct of those who oppose Christ and hate God. Now this is a disturbing message for a lot of people in modern day Christendom because you see the comfort of the comforter in our hearts, the testimony of the comforter to our hearts, the rebuke and reproof of the comforter of the wicked that leads the Lord's people to repentance and salvation and faith and our testimony, that's not good enough for some people. They want there to be some some force, some violence. Their favorite image is the medieval knight in shining armor going forth to vanquish the pagans, the reprobates, the wicked, the haters of God. But that's just not what Jesus is talking about at all here, is He? He's talking about a work of the Spirit. He's talking about a testimony of the Spirit, a testimony of the Lord's people, the preaching of the truth of God's Word, that these are the answer. These are the answer that Christ offers for the hatred and the scorn and the rebuke and the persecution and the lying about Christ and about the Gospel and all the other violent things that they did to Christ and that they have done and will do to the Lord's people. You see, there is not a solution proposed by Christ to this problem of evil people speaking evil things and doing evil things. There is no promise of violence or revenge by the saints, but rather a faithful testifying to the truth by the Lord's people and by the Word of God to the lost and dying of this world and by the comfort of the Comforter in our hearts. And I submit to you that if people cannot be satisfied with that for this time, then there's something dangerously defective about their understanding of the work of the Comforter and about their understanding of the proper response to the critics and enemies and opposers of Christ. That's not to say that one day there won't be violence and a putting down of all the wickedness. Christ is said to be certain to do that one day in judgment. But for now, Christ gives to us the Comforter. And that is to be sufficient for our needs of comfort. Now we read Psalm 35 this morning, and there are a foretaste in that Psalm of David of the ill treatment of our Lord Jesus. Some of the psalm is obviously messianic, although it applies perfectly to David in his time and in his place. But you recall that the Lord Jesus was mocked as He hung on the tree. They goaded Jesus to come down from the cross. They scoffed at the idea that He's the King of His people. They were ignorant of His purpose in saving us by dying for us. And therefore, they derided Christ's declaration of His Father's love for Him 
just as David foretold they would in Psalm 22. They did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, Isaiah said. They didn't acknowledge that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. They didn't acknowledge the solemn, sacrificial, and loving work of Christ on the cross. They just condemned him and railed on him, and they mocked him there. They derided Christ's declaration of His Father's love for Him. They brutalized Jesus. They tortured Him mercilessly. And they finally put Him to death on Calvary's tree. In Psalm 35 this morning, we read that psalm, and I draw your attention to these particular verses that cry out the story of the Lord Jesus in many ways. Verse 11 and 12 of Psalm 35. False witnesses did rise up. They laid to my charge things that I knew not. They rewarded me evil for good, the spoiling of my soul. The Lord Jesus had done nothing but good things for people in His ministry. He had healed the sick, raised the dead, comforted the sad-hearted and the timid. He had forgiven sins. He had done all these good things, and yet they hated Him, as He said earlier, without a cause. And they had done evil for His good. They had returned evil for good. Now, you know, remember, that's one of the main judgments of the law, that a person who returns evil for good is cursed and will be judged by God. But then look at verse 15. In mine adversity they rejoiced and gathered themselves together. Yea, the godless gathered themselves together against me, and I knew it not. They did tear me and cease not with hypocritical mockers and feasts. They gnashed upon me with their teeth. Lord, how long wilt thou look on? Rescue my soul from their destructions, mine only one from the lions. Now we see this at the foot of Calvary, but we also see it throughout history, don't we? Why, there's a whole cottage industry, isn't there, of people who like to get together and hold conferences and mock Jesus, treat His sacrifice with contempt and outrage. Poo-poo all the people that follow after Christ and trust in Him. These people shake their fists in the face of Christ, don't they? The psalmist knew this and foretold this. Then look at verses 19 through 21. Let not those who are mine enemies wrongfully rejoice over me Neither let them wink with the eye who hate me without a cause. For they speak not peace, but they devise deceitful matters against those who are quiet in the land. Yea, they opened their mouth wide against me and said, Aha, aha, our eye hath seen it. This is what they did, didn't they? They mocked him there. They told him, If thou be the Son of God, save thyself. Come down from the cross and we'll believe. He trusted in God that he would Deliver him, let him deliver him now if he will have him, for he said, I am the Son of God. The Lord Jesus was treated and mocked and put to grief in a very similar way as to what David wrote in Psalm 35. But God has vindicated our Lord Jesus and His vindication will continue apace until that time when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. Those people were rebuked soundly by the resurrection of Christ. They tried to cover that up too, of course. So the scoffing and the mocking of Jesus continues even into this day. 
But look at what the writer of Psalm 35 says at verse 22. This thou hast seen, O Lord, keep not silence, O Lord, be not far from me. Stir up thyself and awake to my right, even unto my cause, my God and my Lord. Judge me, O Lord, my God, according to thy righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, Ah, so would we have it. Let them not say, We have swallowed him up. Let them be ashamed and brought to confusion together, who rejoice at mine hurt. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor, who magnify themselves against me. And this is an ongoing process, you see. And part of the work of the Comforter is the rebuke of that sinful nature and those sinful acts in those sinful men. Our testifying to the truth against and in opposition to the lies that they tell about Jesus. But He raised up Jesus from the grave. He exalted Him. He glorified Him. And He brought to pass the salvation of a host of sinners by the sacrifice Christ completed for us. So you see, in God's sight, in the sight of the angels, in the sight of all of the Lord's people, Christ has already been vindicated, exonerated, magnified, praised, exalted for the things He went through and for the work that He accomplished when He suffered in our place on the cross. And to all the calumny and lies and brutalities Christ endured and that His people endure, the reproof of the Holy Ghost and the testifying of the Comforter and the testifying of the Lord's people, both in the Word recorded and in our testimonies, in our declarations even today, the testimony of His witnesses and His people, the Lord Jesus, deems these sufficient for the time being in this life to overcome all that persecution and outrage against the Lord and against His loved ones. Look at Psalm 35 at verse 27. Let them shout for joy and be glad who favor my righteous cause. Yea, let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified who hath pleasure in the prosperity of His servant. And my tongue shall speak of thy righteousness and of thy praise all the day long. This is what is well suited for the Lord's people in defense of their Lord Jesus, that we should rejoice in the victory of Christ, that we should rejoice and magnify the Lord who has prospered the work of Christ all across the world for all time and into all eternity. And the Lord Jesus Himself joins in the praise of His Father for vindicating Him. You see, our Lord Jesus has prospered mightily in His good work, in His great work of redemption. And that work is sealed in us by the Comforter who continually speaks of Christ to us and regales us with the truth about Jesus and the Father's exceeding love for us shown in Jesus. You remember Isaiah wrote these words, It pleased the Lord to crush Him, that is the Lord Jesus. He hath put Him to grief. 
when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And this is what we see every time we meet around the Lord's table, every time we hear of the believers around the world singing praise to God and praying, worshiping Him. This is the seed of the Lord Jesus, which He has raised from the dead, which He has perfected by His offering, which He has justified by His bloodshedding. And this is His vindication and this is His joy for the time being and the Lord's work on Calvary's tree prospers in the hand of Christ raised in power and glory now. And at the Lord's table, we preach the Lord's death for us, don't we? That's what Paul tells us. We preach the Lord's death by displaying these symbols of Christ's body and blood who are made an offering for our sin and by rejoicing in what Christ did for us there. This is wrought in us by the testimony of the Comforter in our hearts, just as Christ had foretold. When the Comforter has come, whom the Father shall send in my name, even the Spirit of truth, he shall testify concerning me. No matter what the wicked world says about Christ, we say, let the Lord be magnified along with the psalmist. For the Comforter has displayed to us and is displaying to us and never ceases to display to us the glories of the Lord Jesus. Praise God. And so we come this Lord's Day again to celebrate the Lord's table and to rejoice in what Christ did. And to rejoice in what He did and rejoice in how He purposed to memorialize what He did so that we should not forget. And this too is worked by the Holy Ghost in us. He uses this Lord's table to help prompt in our hearts praise and thanksgiving for all the things that Jesus did and all the things that He did and accomplished in spite of all the hatred and contempt and mocking and shame that the world heaped upon Him and still heaps upon Him and even heaps upon His people. The Lord will be magnified in it all. I'd like to ask Brother Whitney if he'd give thanks for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. And the Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it. And He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Let's give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed for the forgiveness of our sins. O oh God, our Father, we rejoice in Your dear Son. We thank You for the work of the Comforter in reminding us of the things of Christ over and over again and for preserving Your Word to our hearts. And Lord, we thank You that in the Lord Jesus was found by You the perfect Lamb of sacrifice. He is Your Lamb to be slain for His people. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. We thank You that He's also our Lamb. We who've laid hold of His sacrifice, laid our hands upon His sacred head and cried out, O oh God, judge my sins in this Your dear Son that I might be set free. And You have set us free by the blood of the Lamb. You've declared us justified for Jesus' sake. We who were full of sin and iniquity and disobedience and dishonor, You have 
cleansed us by the blood of Christ and made us fit to be your children by adoption. We thank you that he shed his blood for us, that he gave thanks for the cup, knowing only himself, knowing at that time what it signified and the pain and sorrow it would mean for him, but also the rejoicing and the victory and the joy that would be fulfilled in him for all eternity. Our Lord Jesus rejoices in the saving of his people. And so too do we. We pray you would work in our hearts to rejoice even more and to lay aside all of the gripes and complaints of this life and take hold of the sacrifice day to day, week to week, month to month, forever, that we might rejoice in Christ and what He's done for us around this table. We give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us that after they had supped, He took the cup and He blessed it and He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as you do it in remembrance of me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing that great hymn by Isaac Watts, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, at page 188. My mind recalls the words of that verse that it's not in our hymn books these days. It goes like this, His dying crimson like a robe spread o'er His body on the tree. And I am dead to all the globe and all the world is dead to me. Number 188.